This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Network. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Network does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to Leadership Stories, a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, exploring the intersection of leadership and public service. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. For the last two decades, the IBM Center has led the charge of connecting research with practice and advancing public management scholarship, all while providing leaders with practical insights and actionable recommendations on how to enhance the way government does business. Since its inception, the center has always complemented its rigorous public management research, offering government executives a platform for telling their leadership stories on its weekly interview program, The Business of Government Hour. These conversations inform the center's research agenda, as well as enable us to get the research to those on the front line of public service. Leadership is at the core of the center's mission. Successful leadership is a measure of how we respond to fertility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity, the unknown. By this definition, the center continues to respond by making the unknown knowable and the untried mainstream in public management. Leadership stories are at the core of this show, and this is the first in a series exploring the leadership stories and public service of nine government executives encompassing a wide range of disciplines, a diverse set of experiences, and a vast span of geographies. In this edition, I will introduce you to four of the nine government executives leading missions and programs that include military health, government-wide acquisition, technology and innovation, and environmental protection. The Defense Health Agency, DHA, is an integral component of the military health system, serving as a strategic enabler in ensuring a medical ready force and a ready medical force that seeks to improve health, readiness, care at lower costs. Vice Admiral Raquel Bono has led DHA since 2015 and explains the mission she leads. We reached full operating capability in 2015, and that's when I came in in November of 2015 as the second director of the Defense Health Agency. And what we did at that time is we had an opportunity to see how could we help create efficiencies and savings for the military health system. And one of the first places we looked at were the ten, were ten shared services, and these represent about 85 percent of the shared functions and processes that occur across Army, Air Force, and Navy medicine. Things like logistics, health information technology, the TRICARE health plan, education and training, pharmacy, things like that that we knew happens across all of the services. So that was the first initial part of the DHA, the Defense Health Agency portfolio. 
In addition to that, we also had oversight of the National Capital Region and the market there in running the care through the direct system, the direct care system, uh, through Walter Reed and Fort Belvoir and some of the clinics. And then the third thing that we had as a defense health agency is we were also designated as a combat support agency. And what that means is that we provide actual direct support to the combatant commands. And that's something that I think is is a, a very uh, pivotal and important task, especially as the president and the secretary of defense and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs are articulating their national strategies for military security and defense security. So I, th- I think the, the timing is great. Mm-hmm. And in each of those three areas that I just described, we've, we've not only experienced uh, additional evolution, but we've cre- created greater maturation and understanding of how we can contribute to the effectiveness and efficiency of the, the military health system. Leading an agency with such a critical mission can be quite challenging. Vice Admiral Bono admits. The first one is we're running the hospitals in a more standardized way because we also want to have a health system. We also want to co-create a health system that is, is truly designed with our patients in mind. Actually, they help us be the architects for that, that healthcare system. So it's an important piece that, that as we integrate our patients into the design of their healthcare system, We're also, in a stepwise fashion, creating a much more robust, integrated system of readiness and health. The second area that I think has an abundance of of opportunities here is in the DOD and and military health system reform. Mm -hmm. The second line of effort is allies and partners. And, And while I know that the traditional thinking is how do we make and create these allies and partners with nations through their military, is there a role that we can help with what we do in the military health system. And then the big um, line of effort that Secretary of Defense has talked about is bringing business reform to DOD. And I mean, what better place to try that than in the health sector? And actually, I think my, my timing happens to be just great because you know that that's one of the things that are constantly uh, assailing the civilian and private uh, health sector. Is, is how do we how do we do this in the best way possible in a sustainable way? The third area where I, I see great momentum being generated is in the deployment of MHS Genesis, our new electronic health record. Meeting these challenges and those lurking around the corner takes leadership and the ability to always be present. And I think that what I, I try to always be mindful of is, is first being mindful. And I think you and I, we'd spoken a few minutes earlier about being in the moment. Yes. You have to be present. You really need to be present. And I don't take that lightly because you have to be present in order to be attentive and listen. And I think that is one of the greatest skills or one of the greatest tools that I think leaders have to have is the ability to listen and really hear what what somebody else is telling you. Because change is always challenging. And if you're not if you're not tuned in to what others are telling you, then you might miss that opportunity to help make that shift a little easier or that, you know, that movement a little smoother. And so I think being attentive and listening is something that I feel is an important aspect of of what I bring to my leadership style. The other thing that I feel is extremely important is being inclusive. And inclusive is something, is a term that gets thrown around, but the way I I like to do that is... um, Inclusive and and diversity seem to go hand in hand. But I've come to appreciate that diversity is really all about perspective. Mm -hmm. 
So if I'm trying to be inclusive, how do I gain the perspective of others? What is the best way that I can gain the perspective of others? And I think Mark has had personal experience of sitting in one of my meetings, or maybe several. <laughs> so, several. Several. And, and he has seen what, what happens in those meetings is that I, I typically make it a point at one point in the meeting, usually as we're wrapping up, to ask everybody what they think. And so we go around the room, and I not only ask the people around the table, I ask the people who are around the room to give me thoughts on what they're, what they're thinking. And it might be, it might have something to do with what we talked about. It could be something that is totally, a totally different subject. But what it does, it gives me perspective. And it's, it's interesting what you learn when you understand someone's perspective. Um, so I, I think that even if it might seem, uh, you know, not particularly related, it gives me insight into where that person might be in that moment and what might be important to them. And if, if, they, if I want them to be a part of my team, then this, this leads to the, my third uh, attribute or the third um, characteristic is engagement. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if I know where somebody's at, then it, it helps me understand how the best way to engage them. You know, how do I get to where they are? And then how do we figure out how we want to move? And then how do we create that collective impact? When we spoke early last year, Vice Admiral Bono shared her strategic focus at the time, a testament to her public service. It's all about being able to make change happen. And being a leader, being an effective leader, means that you also help create the conditions in which other people can modify or align their behaviors so that we're all pulling in that same direction. So a really good example of one of the things that took up quite a bit of my bandwidth uh, leading into 2018 was the NDA 2017. Mm -hmm. And one of the statutes or one of the stipulations of that statute had us changing the health care plan to modernize it to a more commercial-like or more private type of health care plan. This is a significant lift for the military health system. You know, we, we have not been accustomed to going to enrollment periods and doing that on, on, a, on an annual basis and requiring everybody mm-hmm. to enroll. On top of that, we were also bringing on board some new uh, managed care support contractors, our partners who help us create those um, networks around our facilities or where our patients are. So we were bringing on two new vendors, two new partners at the same time that we were going to be introducing a new health care plan. And it all had to happen on 1 January 2018 by statute, by law. Now, one of the things that was a pivotal piece in there was what is the process we use for management, identity management? Because as you, you, know, as you understand, if we're moving to an enrollment, then how do we make sure that our patients are identified in a system and then enrolled into a new health care plan? How do I increase the interface that the DHA has, the Defense Health Agency has with industry? Mm-hmm. And so that is one of the I've, I, I fully recognize and I, I love that DOD doesn't have to come up with all the answers. Because oh, yeah. I think, you know, I should look to see who else is doing it and who else might have a better solution out there. And if they do, how do I bring that into our milieu? Mm-hmm. So I think that's, that's one of the things that, that I think has been... Uh, a real driver for making some of these change happen is, is how do we engage with industry more. Vice Admiral Bono, who has led the Defense Health Agency since 2015, offers her advice to those seeking a career in public service. You know, do it. You won't be disappointed. I personally feel that 
that having a military career or having any type of military service is one of the most um, liberating and growth experiencing uh, event that you'll ever have. Um, being able to combine public service with my own medical background and then being able to evolve into some kind of leadership um, capability has, I don't think I would have gotten that same opportunity uh, anywhere else. I, I, I know I'm, I'm extremely biased to that, but I, I think that the other part of this is, is no matter how long a person comes in to serve in the military, it leaves an indelible mark on you. And that is, and that indelible mark is something that others will recognize and will, will be drawn to. Mm-hmm. So I think that, um, that if people are considering that, I mean, of course, I'm in the Navy uniform. I would say go Navy. But I think any military exposure and experience is valuable. It's extremely valuable. And I'll tell you the other piece about being in the military that I personally found is that it is the one arena where I've consistently seen that people get advanced based on their on the merit of their performance. And, and so I, I think that when you're able to show that ability to advance within a system where it is strictly on merit, I would hope that someone would realize or come away with a, a, a very deep-seated sense of, of um, satisfaction and confidence. And I think that's what um, uh, a career or a job or time spent in the military has done for many people. I know it has for me. So I, I would I would advise people. And I would also say, you know, if I can do it, they can too. Certainly. So I would I would invite people to to consider the military as a as a career. From military medicine to government wide acquisition, our next leader, Emily Murphy, administrator of the U.S. General Services Administration (GSA), runs an agency that strives to deliver high quality, cost effective services in real estate, acquisition, and technology for partner agencies across the federal government. Uh, Our services really focus on ensuring our customer agencies can carry out their critical missions and that entities trying to do business with the government can do so as seamlessly as possible. I'm actually in a unique position to talk about how GSA has evolved because I've served there before. I spent a a few years there um, in the Bush administration. And it's been really great to see how GSA has changed in the past 13 years. I've seen GSA really walk the walk. It's consolidated. It's consolidated in terms of space. So we went from having a campus in Crystal City, a campus in Willow Wood, um, down to having all of central office consolidated into one building. Uh, We're down to about 140 square feet per person. So when we talk about spatialization, we're really leading the the charge on that. We've also uh, consolidated in terms of our functions. When I first worked at GSA, there was a federal supply service. There was a federal technology service. Uh, when I came back, there was a technology information service. We've consolidated all of those into a federal acquisition service, and we've consolidated our you know, CIO functions, our CFO functions, and our HR functions into a really a shared service model inside of GSA. Oh. Um, so you know, really trying to lead there. It's also fun to see where we haven't changed. So the, the passion and the mission really have remained the same. And it's sort of fun to see that a couple of the things I implemented the first time I was there have survived. Uh, you know, so procurement management reviews and you know, work on trying to actually make our regulations make sense, keep them up to date. So th- those processes still exist in GSA, and it was fun to see that they kept them mm-hmm. all these years later. Leading such a mission-critical federal agency can be rewarding as well as challenging. GSA Administrator Murphy tells us more about those challenges. 
So if I were going to address three challenges, I'd say one of them is actually a great challenge to have. Um, agencies are relying on GSA more. Mm-hmm. We have more customers coming to us. This does pose a challenge, especially as we get to the end of the fiscal year within, and in a year where we had budgets plussed up. So agencies are trying to obligate funds by the end of the fiscal year, and GSA is trying to help them, whether on the federal acquisition side or the public building side. So trying to be there for our agency customers when they need us. The second challenge, I'd say, is the work we're taking on as a government-wide leader, mm-hmm. whether it be through the government-wide reform plan or the president's management agenda. GSA is being asked to sort of increase the size and the scope of the work that we do. And it, it's actually, you know, it's sort of interesting. It really goes back to President Truman's vision for GSA right. of us being the mission support agency. But we're, you know, this administration is has focused on that vision for GSA and is using us a lot more either in shared services or in helping with transactional processing, giving us a lot more responsibility across government. So the third challenge, though, is really the incredible pace at which technology changes. So we help the government buy a lot of technology and helping them buy the right solutions that meet their needs now and in the future is one of the areas where GSA really focuses on delivering value. Delivering value is at the heart of the General Services Administration, and it takes real leadership. And GSA Administrator Murphy elaborates on the leadership principles that matter most to this public servant. So I think the top priority for any leader has got to be ethical leadership. And that's been my top priority from day one. I think that that means not just doing the right thing. I I hope that would go without saying. But it really, to me, it means acting so the taxpayer has faith that we're putting their interests first that our customer agencies and our vendors feel that we're being an honest broker uh, when we're helping them come to come to deals on solutions, that we admit we make mistakes and we learn from them and we move on, and that we empower the workforce around us to, when they see something that they feel that they can, they can step up and you know, they're going to be taken seriously and that we want to work with them to address those challenges and to make the agency a better partner for, for our customers and for taxpayers. I think also humility, mm-hmm. admitting that I don't know all of it, not, my leadership team doesn't know everything, and that we have to take each day as a day where we're willing to learn from the people we're working with and from the you know, those we're interacting with, because there is so much good work that can be done at GSA, and we want to make sure we seize on every opportunity we have. Making sure agencies seize on every opportunity takes vision and strategy. Emily Murphy, GSA Administrator, outlined her vision for GSA when she came on board. So I have four priorities for GSA. My first one is ethical leadership. My second one is reducing duplication, which a lot of the work we do on shared services, contract vehicles, really trying to be there as that mission support office for other agencies. My third one is increasing competition, not just the number of vendors who bid on our contracts, but making sure we get a real competition of of solutions and of ideas so that we're finding the right answer for our customer agencies and ultimately for taxpayers. And then finally, increasing transparency, making sure that we act in a way that we make our data available to help inform the decisions, to increase competition, and really to prove that that, that ethical leadership and that we're really living up to all those principles. Like those fit very nicely, though, into the four strategic goals that we've got for the agency. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first one is saving taxpayer money through better use of our federal real estate. As I said, it's 371 million square feet 
of rentable space, making sure that we manage that in a way that saves money for taxpayers long term. Secondly, establishing GSA as the premier provider of acquisition solutions across the government, making sure the contract vehicles we develop, that the solutions we come up with meet our customers' needs and attract the best that the private sector has to offer. Third, improving the way that agencies buy, build, and use technology. So helping them not just spend money on a solution that meets their needs today, but it's going to be outdated tomorrow, but helping them really work to find something that's going to transition with them and support them in building this government of the 21st century. And then the fourth one is designing and delivering expanded shared services across the government, uh, where GSA is being really asked to step up and take a leadership role right now. Speaking of stepping up and taking a leadership role right now, GSA Administrator Murphy offers serious advice to those thinking about a career in public service. First of all, I'd say just do it. You're never going to find a better mission. Uh, the value proposition in, in, in being a federal public servant is just amazing. On a more specific level, though, I'd say you never know where you're going to find that issue that really appeals to you that you're going to be passionate about. When I first moved to D.C., I was an intern on the Hill, got my first job up here, I was the junior staffer. And the committee I was working for, the junior staffer got the issue no one else was interested in. For me, that was government contracts. And I took to it right away. I saw that there was just enormous value to be delivered, whether you were looking at the health of our industrial base, the ability to increase competition, the ability to deliver results for taxpayers. All of it came back down to contracting. And nearly a quarter century later, I'm still working in this area and I'm still growing. So yeah, my advice to any anyone considering public services, you know, dive in and you know, seize on any opportunity you have to make a difference because you never know where you're going to find that issue that where you can really just you know, succeed. That's solid advice from GSA Administrator Emily Murphy. How does this federal acquisition leader see the future of government acquisition? I think the future looks pretty bright now right now for acquisition. Uh, there's a terrific willingness between Congress and the administration to actually do a deep dive into these types of issues, whether it be investing in our, our workforce, establishing the you know and supporting the appropriate contracting vehicles through a lot of the work that's taking place with best in class contracts, or even you know, just understanding category management, how we buy, providing looking at providing authorities that are outside the normal regulatory scope when we're finding that that the current regulations don't meet those needs. So I think that there's, and frankly, I'd say that this has actually been an administration that really values what GSA brings to the table in terms of acquisition and sees acquisition as something where we want to make investments and we want to recognize expertise, which gives me a lot of confidence in the future of acquisition. Stay tuned. More leadership stories from public servants when this special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. This is The Center This Week, highlighting the latest trends and best practices for improving government effectiveness, brought to you by the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I'm Michael Keegan, Managing Editor of the Business of Government magazine. The Center This Week is our opportunity to inform and, most importantly, to invite you, our listeners, to use the IBM Center for the Business of Government as your resource, a how-to resource for improving government effectiveness at the state, local, and federal level. 
that the federal government is increasingly acquiring products that have qualities that cannot be clearly or easily defined in advance and that are difficult to verify after the product or service has been delivered. These products are called complex products. The acquisition of complex products requires more sophisticated contracting approaches. Brown, Petoskey, and Vance Lyke discuss the promise and perils of government contracting while providing wide-ranging practical advice on complex acquisition. I'm happy to welcome to our show two members of the research team, Trevor Brown and David Vance Lyke. Given your book and your research, what are some of the things that government executives can learn to make these complex contracting decisions and, and efforts successful? In fact, I think one of the things that we learned the most was how important it is to talk to other parties, right? How important it is to learn, how important it is to understand each other's preferences and motivations and making sure that each other really is on the right page. Agencies, for sure, are taking the acquisition function more seriously. They're not seeing it as just some backwater clerical operation. They're seeing it as a strategic management responsibility. Trevor, did you want to add? One of the things we put in the book at the very outset is there have historically been two approaches to acquiring complex products. One is a very rule-driven approach. We talked about the FAR at the very beginning. The other approach we should do instead is build trusting relationships, the whole relational contracting notion. Our view on these things at a very high level is, is both. You got to have rules that promote cooperation. They can't be overly specified because of the nature of the product you're buying, but you can put in certain kinds of governance rules that promote both sides getting along in those gray areas of the contract. Secondly, you need to structure a relationship that promotes cooperation, that encourages both sides to continue to work with each other. Doesn't necessarily presume at the outset that the other side is trustworthy. Instead, it creates opportunities for that trust to be built up over time. The third part is creating the conditions under which both parties understand each other and understand those rules. So. The book guides the reader through this sort of general framework of crafting the right rules, setting up the right re relationships, and building that mutual understanding that can only be born over a, a series of interactions over time. Now, within that, there are lots of specifics. You need a general contractor. You need integrators to put things together. Great example of this is healthcare.gov, the website. One of the principal failures of this is the absence of an LSI. The presumption of all of the, the vendors was, oh, well, that's the Department of um, Health and Human Services job. They're the integrator. But they don't have the capacity to perform those integration functions. Maybe in the future, we'll live in a world in which the federal government will build that capacity to be able to perform those functions. But in the absence of building that internal capacity, they're going to have to buy it. And there are plenty of positive examples. We highlight uh, the Nimitz, the U.S. military's successful acquisition of aircraft carriers. Uh, and here you have a very challenging market situation in which there's only one purchaser. The Department of the Navy is the only one that buys Nimitz-class aircraft carriers. And there's only one provider. Historically, it was Newport News, uh, which has been bought by Northrop Grumman. 
they are in a long-term relationship, but it's been a very, very successful long-term relationship in the sense that the Department of Defense has acquired an asset that allows it to project its strength and fulfill its mission requirements over a hundred-year period now. And the vendor has successfully been able to remain profitable and continue to produce a product uh, for a single uh, buyer. More information on this and other center resources is available at businessofgovernment.org. There you will find how the business of government is not business as usual. For the IBM Center for the Business of Government, I'm Michael Keegan, and this has been The Center This Week. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Leadership stories are at the core of the Business of Government Hour. Join host Michael Keegan in the second of a two-part series exploring the leadership stories and public service of nine government leaders, encompassing a wide range of disciplines, a diverse set of experiences, and a vast span of geographies. This edition introduces five government executives leading missions and programs that include government-wide acquisition, science and technology, commerce, children and family services, and innovation. That's next week on the Business of Government Hour, Mondays at 11 on Federal News Network. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology, a companion piece to a more detailed report by the Technology CEO Council. That report outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Driving change in the federal government requires more than new policies or the infusion of new technologies. It requires a sustained focus on implementation to achieve positive and significant results. This IBM Center special report provides a roadmap for government leaders to do just that. Download Transforming Government through technology and all IBM Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to Leadership Stories, a special edition of the Business of Government Hour. Today, more than ever, the U.S. federal departments must ensure the security and reliability of their systems and information technology. In many ways, this also involves transforming how these departments deliver and consume information and technology services. The U.S. Department of Justice, DOJ, is one of those many federal agencies working to modernize its IT infrastructure to meet the demands of today. And the DOJ Chief Information Officer, Joe Klemovich, has led this effort since May 2014 and tells us more about his role. One is overseeing DOJ's IT resources, IT portfolio, and that's uh, roughly about 10% of our overall budget, maybe $3 billion uh, annually. So we've got to oversee that and make sure that we're getting the value from that investment. Uh, I've got to deliver IT services to senior leadership, uh, senior management offices, and uh, provide enterprise services uh, to DOJ. I've got to protect DOJ's information and information systems from data loss or unauthorized uh, access. 
I've got engineer, develop, and, and broker new enterprise IT services, and those can come from a lot of different places. I'm also the lead for all geospatial activities in the department, radio uh, frequency, spectrum use, interagency, law enforcement, uh, information sharing. Leading the information technology efforts of the federal department with the mission of enforcing the laws of the country isn't without its challenges. DOJ CIO Joe Klemovich identified some of those challenges. I think it's pretty easy. It's uh, cybersecurity, <laughs> cybersecurity, modernization, and the workforce. Uh, so much of it comes down to your to your workforce, as you're you're alluding to. I'd say cybersecurity is probably the number one challenge. As everybody knows, I mean, cyber attacks are increasing in aggression, sophistication, bypassing traditional security tools. And I'm focused on on enhancing and and strengthening our security posture to defend against these attacks. We have very sensitive uh, law enforcement and national security and uh, operations, missions, and so on, and and that we're a target. And um, so we've got to help maintain uh, the the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of our our systems. The next area is really modernization of our legacy systems, and we've been really focused on that for a number of years. Legacy systems are that are built with antiquated code, contain inherent vulnerabilities, increase the attack surface, and we want to make sure that we're um, modernizing to the extent possible to not only enhance our, our cyber posture, but also reduce our operating costs and enhance our, our general capabilities. The last area I'd say is recruiting and retaining uh, highly qualified uh, IT uh, personnel. We have to work within uh, the federal hiring process mm-hmm. and uh, Sometimes you have hiring freezes and, 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 you know, we have gaps from a competitive pay perspective with the private sector. There's going to be difficulties in locating individuals with the right skills. One area that we're really focusing on is training our, our existing workforce, making sure they have the, the access to the best training and doing everything possible to keep their skills um, current. Meeting such challenges head on rests on strong leadership. So how does the U.S. Department of Justice CIO Joe Klemovich lead? So there are many ways to define leadership. My, my definition of leadership is, is getting people to follow you when a positive outcome is not certain. And I think one of the things you, you've got to do is you've got to be a visible communicator. I always like to tell people that uh, you can't lead by sitting behind your desk and um, hoping somebody reads your email. So you've got to get out there. And somebody told me a long time ago, and I have no idea whether this is true or not, but you actually got to communicate the same message seven different uh, channels, through seven different channels, before people actually take it seriously. Uh, if you just send out an email and think that they actually, they might have read it, but but they're not going to believe it, they've got to hear it from a couple different perspectives. you got to have laser focus on a consistent set of priorities, passion about your job, um, and then the last thing is choose your battles carefully. I, again, I don't have a lot of specifics on this, but um, I've heard that uh, in the Revolutionary War, there were only nine major real battles um, and uh, George Washington uh, lost six of the nine, but he won the right three. It's it's important to figure out what's important and uh, to focus on that and uh, not to chase everything. I say it, you know. Additional, additionally, um, you need to know yourself, your people, and your in your business. Um, uh, the compelling vision, clear goals, priorities. Um, try to figure out everybody fits into this and list everybody's uh, help and. Uh, and then, as I was mentioning earlier about training, equip your personnel, your staff, to be able to, to get on board and, and, and support your, um, you know, your goals. Act on facts and, and make decisions. Um, and I think too often we wait for perfect information 
to make decisions, then it's just never the case, or it's, at that point, it's too late. I think demonstrating the highest uh, standards of conduct, integrity, professionalism, you're always on stage uh, as a leader. One thing I learned from a former NOAA administrator was um, really the only thing you can control in life is how you spend your time, you know, and that's the only thing you actually control. And uh, his view was um, the tactical challenges you face can consume you, you know, if you're not careful. And a, a better way to look at it is maybe one-third of your time is spent on tactical issues, one-third on strategic, and one-third on the workforce. And sometimes I've taken my, you know, calendar, and it's pretty much filled from 7 in the morning to 7 at night, and taken three, you know, markers and color-coding, um, you know, how you actually spend your, 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 your time over a course of a week. And it's not an exact science, but um, if you find you're not focusing on strategic or you're not focusing on the workforce enough, then maybe see if you can kind of uh, change things. I guess lastly, I just say um, you got to be a constant learner, sensitive to the culture and the, the amount of change the organization can take, but then take risks. I would say um, if you really want to learn about leadership is take the job that makes you the most uncomfortable. Take the job that you don't know the subject matter, that you don't know the people because it'll force you to actually then to lead and not uh, manage. Leading and not simply managing centers on a cogent strategic vision and a clear focus. Justice Department CIO Klemovich elaborates. So my vision is to uh, drive information and technology solutions at the pace of American innovation. I, I think it would be a huge failure on my part if the attorney general could go to Best Buy and buy something better than what I'm providing. So... Beyond that, I mean, we want to be known as uh, wise uh, stewards of taxpayer dollars, so um, being frugal with our dollars and smart with our investments. We want to be bold enough to make a difference, adaptive, um, you know, because we're we're embracing and leveraging uh, the changing world, smart risk takers who experiment wisely with technology. And I do expect that as we experiment with technology, and I've seen this firsthand, we, we will expect some things to not... Uh, realize the benefits, the value that we, we expect, but that's part of um, taking risks. We want to be transparent and in- inclusive in uh, all of our operational financial priorities. Um, technology leaders whom people trust because we exceed expectations. We are in the process of um, revising our strategic plan. Typically, those things have a shelf life of about three years. So in that, we got four goals. Let me just kind of yeah, walk through them real quickly here. Continuous service uh, delivery improvement. It's an ongoing thing and uh, something that uh, uh, you always want to focus on. Make sure you're, you're trying to do everything you can to um, drive that end-to-end customer experience and provide tailorable services. So we, well, at the same time, we want to provide enterprise-wide. We want the ter- services to be tailorable to the individual customer. We want to um, build intelligence and automation into standard processes. So much of today's, you you know, IT environment, you got to you got to react fast and most of this you know real time because that just it, the systems just require that. Strengthen and forge uh, strategic relationships with our business partners. Um, I, I really mean business partners. Uh, they're they're every bit as critical uh, to uh, our success as our own in, you know, employees. Want to design and, and launch autonomous services to support mission critical operations. Secondly, is manage taxpayer funds wisely. Um, I, I think that uh, it, with an unlimited uh, 
uh, budget, you can provide great services, but here I'm trying to really focus on how do we uh, maximize the value from our, our budget. And we want to pursue cost savings through shared services and exercise spending authorities that you know, really pave the way for efficient modern systems, strengthen the, the cost transparency, accountability, and performance. A huge amount of focus on leveraging economies of scale through strategic sourcing. Uh, obviously, partnering with other parts of the of the government to do that. I guess lastly in this area is removing um, unnecessary layers of complexity and proprietary solutions. Open source standards-based solutions are uh, ultimately going to be uh, more cost-effective. Third one is protecting the mission. We want to minimize the risk through continuous monitoring. We want to enhance our enterprise-wide incident response and Cyber hunt capabilities mm-hmm. provide enterprise-wide uh, identity, credential access management services uh, to ensure that the right users are accessing the right information um, and, and, you know, we have the right credentials in place. And I also think of uh, when you talk about protecting the mission, we've got to have plans in place for IT recovery, reconstitution, business continuity of our key operations. And finally is um, maximizing the mission uh, capabilities. And um, I like to think of my office as uh, full service, and that includes uh, more than just infrastructure, uh, really f- focusing on how do we uh, drive department-wide access and management of our you know, smart data and realizing the potential of uh, dark or unused data. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of data that's collected for one-time purpose and then um, essentially put on a shelf, and uh, I want to make sure that we're maximizing the utility from the information we have, improving operations and stakeholder experience incrementally through micro-innovations. Uh, micro-innovations or pilots or proof of concepts are a great way to bring in new technology, see you know how easy it is to, to assimilate that into our operations. Can't talk about data without talking about uh, analytics and machine learning. We have tremendous amounts of information, um, a lot of it unstructured, and we're, we're constantly bringing in and evaluating new analytical tools. And I would say expanding uh, access uh, channels and optimizing for cloud and mobility. I mean, it's one thing to say that something can run in a cloud. It's, you know, all, you can say the same thing about mobility, that it, you can access it through mobile devices, but it's another to actually optimize services for both of those. And that's something that we're going to be really focusing on moving forward. Speaking of moving forward, DOJ CIO Joe Klemovich offers his vision of the future. Well, my vision for the future is to deliver uh, high-quality, standard, agile uh, capabilities as part of a broader uh, service-based model. Um, You know, I think um, uh, a lot of this will come together in our our core data centers, but we'll also be a hybrid environment working um, in commercial um, <clears throat> compute in cloud environments. Um, again, um, want to yield not only um, you know better services, but scalability is is key. Flexibility, um, accessibility, um, uh, economies of scale. I mean, just faster implementation is going to be key. Streamlining procurement. Uh, sometimes the procurement process can be a bit uh, onerous. Uh, that's going to be you know key as we and I think. But again, through Buying and using, leveraging somebody else's services, they've already gone through a lot of that. I think there's still opportunities to further share uh, standards and data 
you know, data sharing, especially around, you know, big data and analytics. Uh, so it's not just about the technology. I think, um, as I mentioned earlier, um, around the network, I think, um, you know, we're going to end up building some very high-speed, high-capacity networks, um, you know, to support these future needs. Uh, it seems like you know, the sooner than you enhance the network, uh, it gets filled up. I think a lot of a lot of progress will be made, needs to be made around um, uh, identity management and how we we manage identities. And then I think um, we have basically un, unimagined uh, capabilities around machine learning, artificial intelligence, um, artificial reality, virtual reality, quantum and neuro computing, uh, just to mention a few. So um, it's a very exciting time. Um, looking forward to it. Uh, I don't see any end in sight. Not seeing an end in sight is why Joe Klimovich offers very valuable advice for future public servants. Um, I would highly encourage a career in public service. Um, it's, uh, for me, it's been very rewarding. Um, you can have great influence uh, uh, on, on things that are very important, um, you know, nationally, internationally. The country needs uh, uh, great public servants and, uh, you know, I'd say to say the decisions that you make um, can impact uh, our citizens every day. And um, it's, it's important that uh, we're not only buying the right technology, but um, delivering it in a cost-effective manner. Um, and, you know, the, the things you can do and, and the things you can see, the things you can influence on the federal side is unbelievable. Um, and so we just, I would encourage anybody that's interested in a, uh, public uh, career or even even just doing it for a couple of years, uh, please give it a try. Giving public service a try can provide those interested with diverse and unique careers, such as working to protect the nation's environment. And the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, has as its mission to protect human health and the environment. It's about ensuring future generations inherit a cleaner, healthier environment that supports a thriving economy. Henry Darwin, Chief of Operations at EPA, has one of those unique leadership roles in government. It's a fairly new role uh, within uh, EPA. It has been uh, set forth in some uh, fairly recent legislation that requires each agency to have a COO, a Chief of Operations. My primary responsibility is to make sure that the agency is running as effectively, as efficiently as possible. Uh, what I found uh, when I arrived at EPA was that there really was a lack of a system that would allow me to do my job well. So for the first seven months that I've been here, I have been uh, working on the deployment of an intentional management system based upon uh, lean principles. So over the course of the last seven months, uh, we've been uh, choosing the things that we're going to measure as an organization, those things that are important to the administrator but also those other things that we need to keep track of to make sure that as we are getting better in certain areas that we're not uh, falling behind in, in other, other important areas at the same time. So uh, when working on those, uh, those things that we want to measure on a much more frequent basis than EPA is comfortable with or been, is uh, done in the past. Uh, so uh, we're talking about measuring things on a monthly basis rather than a semi-annual or annual basis. Uh, and these are not just outcome-oriented measures, although we are 
talking about outcome measure oriented measures like how we measure clean air and clean water and safe drinking water and clean clean chemicals and clean land. But what are the things that we need to do as an organization to make sure those things are happening? To make sure that we're getting the outcomes that the American public expects from us on uh, doing our day our day to day work. Uh, so. Uh, at the outset, it's just a matter of setting up that system. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, uh, we'll be uh, using that system to manage the agency. We're already starting to do that. So each program uh, now has a scorecard that they submit to me on a monthly basis that contains all of the measures that they're going to be reviewing on a monthly basis to make sure they're making progress towards uh, meeting their part of our mission. Uh, and they're also holding business reviews. Um, on a monthly basis, they sit around a table and they review those measures to make sure they're meeting the targets that have been set for those measures and that they haven't been met, that they're doing something about it. Um, and that's done through a report that's submitted to me, a plan or a report that's submitted to me that outlines the things that they're going to do in order to get back on track to meeting that target they've, that they have set that's associated with their part of meeting EPA's mission. Meeting EPA's mission comes with many challenges. Its chief operations officer elaborates on the challenges he has faced. One of the the biggest challenges that uh, EPA faces is identifying the owners of process. Mm -hmm. Uh, With such a large organization uh, and with such a complex mission, um, it's often difficult to identify the person, the leader, who's responsible for a given process. We'll take an example. uh, the Superfund process. Uh, so the Superfund process, Superfund was set set in place by Congress to provide a fund uh, to clean up sites for which there was not a viable responsible party that could be found in order to clean up the site, basically historically contaminated sites. It's a very complex process that takes, you know, doesn't take months or years, usually it takes decades in order to get a site uh, from identification of a need for cleanup to when it's cleaned up and ready for uh, its anticipated uh, use. Finding a person that's responsible for not only a given uh, site, but also for their process in general has been has been a challenge. Uh, the other challenge uh, really has been getting the agency to think about uh, measurement on a more frequent basis. They're uh, used to measuring on a annual or at most a semi-annual basis. Uh, I mean, the way that I've, I view that uh, as an issue is that uh, when we measure something on an annual or semi-annual basis, we have one, if, if at most two times uh, a year, an opportunity to make course corrections. If we are measuring what we do on a monthly basis, then we have 12, to- 12 opportunities a year to uh, make changes. And of course, if we do it weekly, we have 52 opportunities a year uh, to make changes. So uh, getting uh, the agency comfortable with this idea that they'll be monitoring uh, their operations, monitoring the work that they do on a more frequent basis has been such somewhat of a challenge because um, they're not used to it. Um, those measurements aren't in place. The means by measuring them um, aren't in place. And then that's th- that, that brings me to the, the third uh, major challenge. Um, this is a, a challenge for any uh, government enterprise. And that is, how do we measure our success? Because at its core, any management system is about measuring the success and, mo- and managing to the success of the organization. Uh, in the government context, uh, what, we c- what we could be measuring uh, to, to evaluate our success is almost infinitely complex. Uh, whereas uh, the private sector uh, is able to monitor their success by their bottom line, 
their, uh, their profits and losses. How do you measure the profits and losses of a government organization? Um, because what we do is much more than uh, our bottom line. Uh, for the EPA, our, our, our mission is about protecting public health and the environment. So we need to find a way of measuring our success with respect to protecting public health and the environment. And it's not as easy as it sounds. We're, we're doing our best uh, to try to figure out where those, those opportunities exist and where we can measure outcomes. But a lot of those outcomes, uh, because of the nature of our work, don't change very frequently. Uh, so it's hard for us to see in our day-to-day activities how we're making influence or influencing uh, the outcomes that are, are important. A, a great example of that is uh, clean air. Uh, so the way we've chosen to measure clean air is by the number of non-attainment areas in the country. A non-attainment area is an area uh, that is not meeting a national ambient air quality standard. So something like lead is a national ambient air quality standard. Uh, so if there's a part of the country that's not meeting uh, the lead standard, then that is uh, something that we're counting uh, as part of our measurement. So we currently have uh, 166 areas of this country that are not meeting the national ambient air quality standards. So we've set a goal for ourselves of reducing that number to 101 by 2022. So we want to go from 166 non-attainment areas to 101 non-attainment areas over the next five years. So because those non-attainment areas are challenging uh, in order to reverse uh, the pollution that's causing them, we need to find ways of measuring our daily, weekly, and monthly activities so that we can monitor our progress towards meeting those, those goals that aren't changed or aren't, aren't, aren't moving um, as often uh, as monthly. So that's, that's really a challenge for us is identifying uh, those things that we want to measure as being important and, and are to evaluate the success of our organization, but then converting them into things that we can measure on a, on a monthly or even more frequent basis. The success of all federal agencies involves leadership. EPA Chief of Operations outlines his leadership approach. So uh, to me, um, it all begins with uh, um, a passion for uh, performance, process, and people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, a leader, in my, in my view, has to be passionate about the performance of whatever part of the organization they've been a- asked to lead. They have to be constantly looking for opportunities to uh, measure uh, the effectiveness of their organization. They also have to, to realize that there's a process that leads to performance. And when performance is not achieved, that the first thing they look to is process and not people. A bad leader, in my view, uh, first reaction to a performance problem is to look for someone to blame. Um, And there certainly are situations where a person is the reason for bad performance, but that's very rarely the case. Most often when performance is not being achieved, it's because there's a broken process. Um, Either the process isn't designed well or adherence to the process is not occurring. Uh, So they have to have a real passion for for process, identifying what the process is that they're responsible for, the steps associated with that process, and how they're going to visually manage uh, that process to make sure that uh, 
both the process is flowing as 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 it's supposed to, but also that it's performing um, like it's supposed to as well. And then lastly, um, it's a passion for people. Uh, and when I say a passion for people, it's a passion for people development. Um, good leaders are about humble inquiry um, and helping their employees um, develop as employees, develop as as professionals and not about solving their problems for them or becoming the pillar of knowledge that their employees come to uh, in order to solve problems uh, for them. Uh, so it's about developing their skills, developing their ability to solve problems uh, for themselves um, and helping them um, develop that capability uh, over time. Developing workforce capacity over time is a key for most federal agencies. Henry Darwin, the chief of operation at EPA, tells us what a great decision it was for him to become a public servant. Well, first of all, I would say that I have not once uh, in my over 20 years of public service ever thought that I made a bad decision. There's no doubt, and this is no secret to anybody, that I could be making a lot more money uh, doing the work that I, that I do in the private sector. But the fact matter is that there is no greater opportunity to actually make a difference in my view, than being in the public sector. So I guess the advice that I would, I would give is that um, is to find uh, a part of government uh, that you are passionate about, um, whether it be environmental protection, uh, building roads, uh, protecting children, whatever your passion is, find a government uh, agency and the work at, at the beginning does not matter. It's just getting in the agency and your passion uh, will uh, lead to opportunities uh, to make a difference. I hope you've enjoyed the leadership stories of four public servant leaders profiled on today's show. Be sure to join me next week for another edition of Leadership Stories, a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, an informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. Leadership stories are at the core of the Business of Government Hour. Join host Michael Keegan in the second of a two-part series exploring the leadership stories and public service of nine government leaders, encompassing a wide range of disciplines, a diverse set of experiences, and a vast span of geographies. This edition introduces five government executives leading missions and programs that include government-wide acquisition, science and technology, commerce, children and family services, and innovation. That's next week on the Business of Government Hour, Mondays at 11 on Federal News Network. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all center reports at businessofgovernment.org.